0: This is not the media. This
1: is hell.
2: You got to learn Yaja Shmadia. It makes you feel so much be- better. Just say Yaja Shmadia. Yaja Shmadia. <sighs> we got actual mail. We got mail. We got an envelope in the mail with stuff in it. What's really great about this envelope in the mail that has stuff in it is the great stuff inside, but also... The fact that there is no return address, other than a postal mark to tell us that it has, oh, I guess there is kind of a return address. It's in Oakland, California. There's no name. It's kind of just stamped on there with a zip code. But whoever anonymously sent us this amazing envelope in the mail, I cannot thank you enough. The writing of This Is Hell on it is very artistically done. And inside, all that it contains is three, three Stickers. The first says, Crime pays, but botany doesn't. I completely disagree with that. Secondly, there's another one with what looks, appears to be a Native American, and he's saying, Thinking back, it was the biggest load of bullshit I've ever heard. That's a pretty good sticker, but easily the best of the three. I don't know about you, but I hate. Those coexist bumper stickers, and the reason I hate those coexist bumper stickers isn't because of the sentiment, it's just because they are ubiquitous. It was clever the first time I saw it, but the 9,568,322nd time I saw it, I was getting real sick of it. And so, whoever sent us this wonderful envelope from Oakland did their own version using all of the different symbols from different religions. And it says, eat a dick. So I just wanted to thank whoever sent that wonderful envelope from Oakland. Thank you very much. Today, we are getting all wonky with a legislative and policy expert. With package delivery in such high demand during the novel coronavirus pandemic, you'd think if you were in the business of delivery, of logistics, you'd be making a fortune right now. With profits rolling in as people stay home or stay away from stores to avoid contact. With the infected masses, somehow that's not was how it was working out for the United States Postal Service at the outbreak of the virus. Instead, they feared the money, they, the money needed to run the service could run out as early as September, although an uptick in delivery since has pushed that date back to March 2021. But that increase in packages is being offset by a decrease in mail, namely direct marketing. Because when there's an economic decline, there's not much extra money to buy the unnecessary junk they try to sell you through direct advertising. To meet the increased package demand, postal workers are working harder, longer hours. problem is the Postmaster General wants to cut overtime among a myriad of policies that would seem antithetical to an efficiently run post office. And on top of the postal crisis caused by the pandemic, now conservatives want to give all corporations who may have purposely put... Workers in harm's way during the outbreak and spread of the virus, they want to give them a get-out-of-jail-free card. All of the corporations, they want to give them a get-out-of-jail-free card so they cannot be held accountable or responsible for their negligence from which their the owners profited handsomely. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the pandemic's impact on the mail and on workers' rights when we have the return of director of the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and co-editor of the IPS website inequality.org Sarah Anderson Sarah has been appearing on This Is Hell since I don't know, we found an interview from March fifteenth, two thousand and three, that we did with her—the first day of the Iraq War, when she had just released an article called "Coalition of the Coerced." In fact, that interview will be tomorrow's Patreon interview. Patreon dot com slash This Is Hell. Subscribe now, and you will be able to get tomorrow's exclusive Patreon podcast that will include our March fifteenth, two thousand and three, interview. With Sarah You can follow Sarah On Twitter At Sarah D. Anderson Followed by the number one And of course We'll wrap up the week As we do most weeks With a moment of truth From contributor Jeff Dorchin This week Jeff prepares Rotten eggs For the workers Of the world I'm your bitter blind Broke gap tooth Radio show podcast Livestream host Chuck Mertz Producing this week's show Is Alex Jerry Alex any plans For the next ten days Is our show Here at thisishell.com We'll be uh, returning On Tuesday August 25th, as I am going on my annual family vacation to Cottage-on-Lake.
0: Book in fall. Uh, The (laughs) only time I ever look forward more than like one week into the future is uh, when we look at what books are coming out in the fall for This Is Hell. So I'm really excited to kind of go through catalogs and see what people are putting out, even though, as we've learned from the last four months, all of those dates change really (laughs) fast. Uh, There's a bunch of books we're we're looking forward to, including uh, the number one for me, at least so far... It's Andreas' mom book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline.
2: Oh, really? That sounds good. He has two books actually coming out this fall, but uh, that's got the best title. In preparation for our annual family vacation, we had the car tuned up yesterday, and it turns out that clunking noise we've been hearing, uh, that noise is caused by compromised tie rods. Alex, do you know what tie rods are?
0: I don't even know what a tie is in a car (laughs) context. Or a
2: rod. No. It's not. Alex Rodriguez's son. Don't worry. Tie rods are the thing that connects your steering to your wheels, essentially. Oh yeah, that seems like you probably, uh, that should work, probably. In other words, when your tie rods go, you can no longer steer your car. And that's what happened with my dad when he got rid of our uh, family station wagon. He was about 50 yards away from the factory where he worked, and the tie rod blew, and he said he saw the left front wheel pointing left and the right front wheel pointing right (laughs) and he muscled the car into a scrap lot and threw the keys at the guys that was right next door to his factory and he said here it's all yours got 50 bucks for it maybe we'll get that after our 2006 Nissan Sentra finally dies it's got over 210,000 miles on it we have to go drive 600 miles on it so yeah being able to steer Very excited about it. This week's question mail is: What's the name of the system you want? What is the name of the system you want? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail, which is again: What is the name of the system you want? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but you have to have it by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, how have listeners answered the question from hell since yesterday's show?
0: This week's question from hell is, what is the name of the system that you want? What is the name of the system that you want? Sebastian M. says, shut up, Dad, or everyone gets a cake except Steve. (laughs) Who's Steve? (laughs) Uh, Barrett M. says, pharma-fascism. Ben C. says, zen-baptism. Chandler H says, "Oh, he's a fully automated luxury Titoist hoax-sized Posadas communism from last from yesterday? Yeah. Uh, Fabio says, "I don't want any system that would have me as a member." Dan K says, "Meteor." Shane M says, <laughs> "Cherry on topinator." And Mark AS says.
2: Matrix. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell. Following our guests again, you can email them to us, post them on our Facebook page, you can DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. We're announcing this week's winner. At the end of the show today, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth this week, Jeff prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is Hell. I was trying to think of something positive that could come from Joe Biden selecting a former prosecutor, Kamala Harris, as his uh, running mate. Putting someone on your ticket who could be perceived as pro-cop in the midst of an uprising against policing could be a bit risky if you are planning on winning an election this fall. But then I thought, wait, she's a prosecutor, as in someone who prosecutes crimes. And if Biden wins, she'll be vice president. And vice presidents don't have anything to do, so maybe, just maybe, she'll be holding the Trump administration accountable and responsible for its crimes while in office. You know, like the Obama administration held the Bush presidency accountable and responsible for lying us into war with Iraq. Oh yeah. That's what Obama voters thought Obama was going to do, despite Obama never saying that was something he was going to do. If Biden does win, and that is a huge if, I'm looking forward to Democrats instead, scolding activists for pressuring Joe Biden to move to the left once in office. Expect the same dire warnings and threats activists heard in 2009 when Obama took office, including the Democrats' classic hits like One Turn President. And look what happened to Jimmy Carter, because, you know, Jimmy Carter was so far left, he was practically a communist, which is absolutely not true. In fact, Carter was the first neoliberal, and he ushered in an era where the party turned its back on the rank-and-file and and embraced big-money politics. Meanwhile, Trump is busy trying to figure out a derisive nickname for Kamala Harris, which is a really easy thing to do and shouldn't take anyone more than five seconds to come up with Kami Kamala. So I think Trump might be losing it when he can no longer come up with what are seemingly easy nicknames of derision. You know he's having severe cognitive issues. But I'm going on vacation, so I'm sure we'll all work out just fine. There was some looting downtown over the weekend here in Chicago, and I just... Wanted to point out to anyone who actually watches local TV news here, a 15-year-old boy was shot by police leading to protests in Englewood, which then moved to the Loop and targeted stores that have raked in TIF money while neighborhoods like Englewood get nothing. The only reason I'm mentioning this is because the boy who was shot has not been mentioned in local news coverage. The protests against the shooting, which resulted in the police reacting violently, has not been mentioned. The police not having activated their body cameras at the protest has not been mentioned. Then saying they had not been issued body cameras has not been mentioned, both of which are violations of CPD policy, no matter how you feel about the surveillance of body cameras. The disinvestment from Englewood and the Black Lives Matter statement explaining all of this are also being completely ignored by local news here in Chicago. So, If you want to have a better understanding of what happened last weekend, if you don't want to toe the police and mayor's line on this like the local TV news media always does, assuming the police version of every story is the only version of every story, go read the press release at BlackLivesMatterChicago.com. You might as well read it. Chicago local news media won't. But I'm certain that while I'm away on vacation, local news will turn it around and start giving airtime to those who aren't cops or the mayor. Also yesterday, following the show, I heard an interview with a guy who interviewed the person who runs the Big Ten about the conference canceling sports for the fall, which means no Northwestern football to preempt Saturday morning broadcasts of This Is How this year. The guy who interviewed the guy who runs the Big Ten said, we need sports to cope with reality. To cope is to deal successfully with something difficult. In this case, I guess that's something difficult to deal with, would be reality. Coping with something is putting up with it, enduring it, surviving it, wrestling with it, grappling with it, struggling with it, suffering from reality. It's tolerating something that is intolerable. And the coping mechanism we have is that old chestnut of bread and circuses, that is sports, distracting us from how horrible real life actually is by feeding us militaristic displays of nationalism followed by competition. At least some of that has been taken out, especially during the NBA games. That's why they want sports back, whoever they are. Fans want the distraction from the reality of a life without distraction that reveals how lousy life under capitalist neoliberalism really is. Leaders in government m- want people distracted from the fissures that the pandemic has repe- revealed in the uh, shortcomings of the system within which we operate. The media definitely wants them back because without sports, they're out billions of dollars. Sports is the state religion, it is the opiate of the masses. And maybe if we had gotten clean a little longer, We may not be as dependent on a distraction to help us cope with reality. Me? To cope with reality? I'm going on vacation because this is hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, the pandemic's impact on the post office and workers' rights. We'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question, mail, which is, what is the name of the system you want? What is the name of the system you want? And we'll be announcing our favorite and the winner of a This Is Hell face mask, which are suddenly back in style. Who knew? Oh, yeah, everybody. During the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. The coronavirus pandemic has become a massive challenge for the U.S. Postal Service, with people in lockdown dependent upon packages being delivered to their homes. The economic downturn caused by the virus has also been challenging to the post office because, as goes the economy... So goes the mail. But it's not only postal workers whose occupations have become more dangerous since the outbreak. In fact, workers' rights are being threatened by the pandemic as well. Here to tell us what's happening with the USPS and worker rights in a time of coronavirus, returning to This Is Hell, Sarah Anderson directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and is co-editor of the IPS website, inequality.org. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sarah
1: Thanks.
2: Great to be here. Oh, my God. I think it's been like nine years. We are sharing tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell the earliest interview that I've been able to find with you. And that was March 15th, 2003 the day of the invasion of Iraq when you were on to talk about an article you had done at the time, Coalition of the Coerced. So we're going to be playing that on Patreon t- uh, tomorrow. People can find it at patreon.com slash this is hell. Sarah's recent writing includes more Republicans should support crisis aid for the Postal Service, which was posted at the Hill. USPS needs financial aid to continue providing essential services, which she co-wrote with Brian Wakama and uh, Scott Klinger and was posted at inequality.org and her latest, Workers Need the Right to Sue, which was at The Progressive Which I found absolutely fascinating You could follow Sarah on Twitter At Anderson one In your article at The Hill last month You wrote the U.S. Postal Service has handled An astounding surge in package demand As millions of Americans have come to rely On home deliveries of food, medicine, and other Essentials during the crisis, but the pandemic Has also led to plummeting mail revenue And rising labor costs COVID-19 has sidelined thousands Of frontline postal workers, and As of the end of June, at least 69 had lost their lives to the virus why did why didn't demand turn into huge profits for the postal service at the outbreak of the pandemic why didn't that just all of a sudden the postal service was just doing fantastic was just flush with cash because it would seem that demand should lead to profits not losses so why is the usps why was it losing any money when their services needed more than ever
1: that's a great question because I'm sure a lot of people are seeing the surges in packages being delivered to their apartment buildings and their homes, and many of those are delivered by postal workers. And the, so the demand spike has been for those kinds of packages, especially as people try to socially distance and order things online that they normally wouldn't. But the most profitable part of the postal service has been mail, uh, letters, and marketing mail, and that has Plummeted along with the, the you know hardships that so many businesses are facing, um, and so the rise in package deliveries hasn't been able to um, you know make up for the loss in mail revenue. And package deliveries are also really labor intensive. The trucks that postal workers are driving, those boxy ones that are the most uh, typical ones, the average life of those things is twenty eight years. Uh, so they They were designed before e-commerce was even a thing and they're not really designed to handle the level of package deliveries that um, they're handling right now so a lot of postal workers have to make multiple trips uh, on their routes to reload packages and and go back and so that's another uh, reason why their costs have increased along with overtime pay as workers um, have had to fill in for so many postal workers uh, being affected by by the virus. They have been working uh, much longer hours. Is
2: increased efficiency at USPS as easy as updating their fleet of delivery trucks, as easy as getting them bigger trucks possibly? Is it that easy of a fix to make the post office more efficient?
1: Well, that would be helpful, but I, I feel like I should fill people in on, on what's been happening just in the last week with the Postal Service, because there's a new head of it, uh, the Postmaster General. He's an ally of President Trump. He was a Republican mega-donor, and he is quickly showing that he is now the fox in the hen house. And his whole fixation has been um, to make changes that he claims will increase the efficiency of the Postal Service, but have actually had just the opposite effect. So his response to all of these postal workers working longer hours, uh, you know, really stepping up in this time of national need and coming through and providing essential services for people, instead of rewarding them, he is, he has banned overtime pay. He has banned those multiple um, trips along a, 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 the same route. All of the things that they've been doing to try to make sure they're meeting people's needs de- during this crisis. And so, people may have noticed uh, may, the mail has been slowed down around the country um, because postal workers are being ordered to leave mail and packages behind if they can't. If, if, if rather than claiming any overtime. Pay, at all. So his approach to efficiency has been a complete disaster, uh, resulting in many calls for his resignation. Um, many people worried now about, you know, is this all just because they want to undercut the vote by mail that that so many people are going to have to rely on uh, during this pandemic to exercise their basic democratic rights. So step number one here is we've got to stop this box from you know really doing damage in the hen house here the new postmaster general has got to be um told he has to reverse these uh, changes that are so damaging at the very worst time when people need the postal service um, to, to have you know as much capacity as they possibly can, he is undercutting it. and they need both you know financial aid uh, to make up for their revenue losses under the crisis and they need an end to these insane service cuts that are, are making a situation so much more challenging. Beyond that, we can take a breath and say, yeah, let's also replace their vehicle fleet. And there is a bill in Congress that, um, it's not going to go anywhere in the near term because, uh, the Senate, the Republican controlled Senate isn't going to vote for it, but it would, uh, replace the vehicle fleet with, um, uh, electric or zero emissions, vehicles that would really meet the needs of the 21st century instead of these trucks, like I, like I said, that are uh, 28 year, years old out there with, with no air conditioning and a lot of other things that make it really um, challenging for the workers.
2: The National Association of Letter Carriers President Frederick Rolando released a statement congratulating Louis DeJoy on May 6, 2020 this year, the day of DeJoy's appointment by the Board of Governors. In that statement, Rolando warned about politicization of the USPS, saying keeping politics out of the Postal Service and maintaining its independence is central to its success. Why is politicization of the Postal Service, bad for the success of the USPS?
1: Well, it absolutely should not be a politicized partisan issue. And one reason for that is that the people who would be uh, hit the hardest if our, we lose our public postal service, if it's sold off to uh, for profit corporations, are people in rural areas who are predominantly, you know, heavily Republican. Uh, they have an you could argue an even greater interest in keeping a strong public postal service because if for-profit corporations take it over, they're not gonna have any interest in losing money on high cost deliveries to people in rural areas or, or mountains or you know tribal communities in Alaska or islands or you know any of these areas that aren't especially lucrative. Our public postal service has a universal service obligation. So they take money from their more profitable areas and use it to cover the cost to all of those more far flung places that are heavily Republican. So there's just no um, reason why we wouldn't have a strong bipartisan push right now to uh, defend the Postal Service from these attacks. The Trump administration started pushing uh, privatization back in 2018. Now they're trying to use the crisis to get leverage to um, drive even more of their draconian uh, cuts and just preparing the the path for privatization of the postal service, and everyone in the country should be standing up and making a, a huge um, stink about this.
2: Oh, uh, why how unpopular would it be then in rural parts of the United States if their Republican legislators uh, didn't support the USPS? All these Republican senators, Republic, uh, Republican congressmen, they're all signing on to this twenty five billion dollar aid package for the USPS would it be enough for rural Republicans to maybe not vote Republican or not vote at all? How on how popular is the postal service in rural areas? Because it just seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot. It doesn't make sense in that aspect of it.
1: Absolutely. Well, one poll uh, showed that 90 percent of Republicans support a uh, Crisis relief for the Postal Service, 96% of Democrats. But the point is, there is overwhelming support for it. But that's why it's so worrisome to have the new Postmaster General undercutting it and, and sabotaging it from within. Because once people go through the experience, um, you know, I have an, uh, an elderly neighbor who has been waiting for an alimony check <laughs> for a long time, and she's really freaked out about it. And the more people start to have to worry about uh, the postal service and worry about whether it can be relied on—that that's. Um you know, that could just be a, a slippery slope. I hope people understand that putting private corporations in charge of this isn't the answer. The answer is coming through, you know, nor in normal times, the post office doesn't take any taxpayer money. They pay for all of their operations by selling stamps and, and charging for their services. This is in an extraordinary moment, a historic crisis, and they need everybody to really step up and demand that they get the support they need so they can continue... I mean, delivering these essential services and to protect the legitimacy of our election in the fall.
2: So the private sector, the market, they can't provide a service like the USPS offer, offers and that they deliver packages to everyone anywhere in the United States. What do market purists miss when they believe the private sector can fulfill any government funded service, including something like the USPS?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. There is no other entity that delivers to every address in America six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. Um, to try to replicate that infrastructure um, with uh, through private c- competition is just absolute insanity. Um, other countries that have done it have um, had, you know, Prices increase dramatically. I mean, that that has been a big commitment of the Postal Service is providing services at uniform and affordable rates. Um, so I guess they think that it's just fine for, you know, a, an elderly person in a rural community to have to pay, um, you know, exorbitant prices to get their medications. And and they are just fine with that. That's the only thing that I can think of. Um because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. Um, Trump himself really has a thing against the Postal Service. Um, it's, it, you know, I think it's kind of rooted in two things. One is he despises Jeff Bezos, um, the CEO of Amazon, for uh, owning the Washington Post, which doesn't always say nice things about uh, Trump. And so he's gotten it into his head that uh, the Postal Service, as he puts it, is a joke because they lose money every time they deliver a package for Amazon. I'm no big fan of Jeff, Jeff Bezos, but it's it's just simply not true that they lose money on those deliveries. They are making money when they help um, Amazon and UPS and FedEx do, deliver that last mile um, of a lot of the, the deliveries around the country. Um, the second reason uh, Trump can't stand it is just the idea of uh, a public service is really foreign to them. So he thinks of everything through the for-profit model. And it especially seems to be irritating him that this workforce, which by the way, is 40% people of color. Um, it's, you know, long been one of the, you know, few reliable routes to the middle class for African-Americans has been for decades. It really, bugs pe- people like Trump, that they make decent pay and benefits. They're not rich, but they're not making poverty wages either. And they would really like to, to shift to a model where we have people making, you know, Walmart level pay, um, delivering our mail. And, uh, you know, I think we should all be really proud of the fact that we have over, you know, two centuries built up this um infrastructure that benefits everybody. And all of those decent jobs in the Postal Service support their communities, and there's postal workers in every community in this country. So we should all be really proud of that and defending them.
2: There's an impression, not just amongst city residents here in Chicago, but also even amongst uh, postal workers, that The USPS, they don't deliver Amazon anymore We see the Amazon trucks going around the neighborhoods You don't see a postal truck dropping off Amazon packages We know that postal carriers here in the whole Chicagoland area All the way up to the North Shore They haven't been delivering Amazon packages for a couple of years So we may have this impression amongst even residents or postal workers That the USPS no longer delivers Amazon But I want to make certain that people understand they do Amazon still depends on the postal service Why, where does Amazon depend on the Postal Service?
1: Well, it is more common in um, the the less urban, less, you know, heavily- concentrated uh, areas of the country, Um, I wish I had the figure right off the top of my head, but it's still a substantial share of packages um, from Amazon, UPS, and FedEx that that the postal service is delivering. But you're right that Amazon has invested a lot in um, their own delivery trucks and all of that. And part of it is because they see that this is an agency under assault, uh, who knows how this is going to turn out uh, for their own, um, you know, they're, they're hedging their bets here. If, if we have a president who wakes up every morning trying to figure out how to destroy the public postal service, uh, you can see why executives at Amazon think they better invest in their own truck fleet rather than um, you know relying on the postal service so the the hostility towards the postal service under the trump administration has has definitely um, incentivized amazon to replace those postal trucks and you know it's crazy to think that then you've got you know if we really had a, just a total free market system we'd have multiple trucks going every day to every (laughs) address in America, it just it doesn't make any sense. Um, You know, in so many ways, we should really be impressed with the Postal Service right now because they have handled a a 50 percent increase in um, the volume of the packages. They've shown themselves to be very um, resilient in the face of this crisis, but they are really being hammered from all sides right now.
2: So you also had another article a couple weeks later that you co-wrote, uh, again, that was with uh, Scott Klinger and Brian Wacamo at Inequality.org called USPS Needs Financial Aid to Continue Providing Essential Service. And you write with Scott and Brian, the U.S. Postal Service is playing a more vital role than ever in our country's public health and economy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Postal workers have performed extraordinarily well in handling the skyrocketing demand for home deliveries of essentials from medicine to food. How much more important is the Postal Service now due to the pandemic when it comes to public health? Without the Postal Service, how much worse do you think any reaction to the pandemic could have been? How much worse could have this been for public health?
1: Yeah, I mean, just to give some indicators. So if you think about the the veterans uh, in our um, in our country, the Veterans Administration sends more than 80 percent of all prescriptions to veterans through the Postal Service. So what would they um, have done if they hadn't been able to get those prescriptions? They likely would have ha- felt compelled to have to show up at clinics or VA offices or whatever, um, rather than being able to stay home and socially uh, distance to, to protect their health and, and other people's health. Um, there are, are countless stories of people also in uh, rural areas who you know, would be completely um, lost without their uh, deliveries through the the Postal Service, all those stimulus checks. And I know there's still some problems with people getting stimulus checks, but, um, you know, the the problem would have been much worse if we hadn't had a, a, you know, from coast to coast uh, mail delivery system that we could rely on. And so... Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine what what it would have been like without uh, being able to rely on the system. And and what we should be focused on is how do we make it even stronger so that we're even more resilient in the face of future crises? And I'm glad you brought up the, the idea of replacing the trucks, because having more. Um, you know, uh, s- environmentally friendly uh, truck uh, fleets uh, would be one one thing that could be done to strengthen it. But there are a lot of other ways as well. There's a lot of interest in postal banking and having perhaps a partnership with the Federal Reserve so that every American has an individual account with uh, low interest rates that could be ac- accessible through the postal service. Um, that would have definitely improved the delivery of all of those stimulus Checks and so people have been pushing that um, to be in a future um, in a future stimulus package. Um, there are other things the Postal Service could do, like in some other countries, they have the letter carriers check in on elderly and other homebound people and be part of a, a care economy infrastructure to deal with our aging population and allow. Um, people to have more independence as far as living at home rather than going in, into institutions because they have systems for checking in with them and reporting back to social workers and that type of thing. So that's the kind of conversation I wish we were having right now as the country is how to reimagine the Postal Service to make it even stronger and even more in sync with the, the needs in, in the 21st century. And instead, we're having to invest so much time, not just in, you know, fighting People on on Capitol Hill to to get the service, the support they need, but now also having to fight with the leader of this vital public agency.
3: And
2: the dependence upon direct marketing and direct advertising, that wouldn't seem like a very good long term or sustainable business model. For the post office. So that wouldn't, you know, I would think that that would be something that they would want to address as well, because that would seem like a very precarious future if you're just counting on direct mail. You write that prior to the pandemic, the Postal Service had not sought taxpayer support because it has managed to pay for its operations through sales of stamps and other services. But in this time of unprecedented crisis, Congress should come through with financial aid for USPS as it has for many other industries and companies. While recipients of coronavirus aid are not entirely known yet or how much they received, is it known if private delivery firms received aid, the kind of aid that USPS has not?
1: I don't believe they have taken it, but I do know that UPS and FedEx um, both could have gotten some money through the airline bailout because they have a, you know, part of their business is um, through, you know, air, airline uh, delivery. Um, but I, I don't know if they've, they have taken that. I mean, I think that because they they just do package delivery. They don't do mail. They don't do letters. And so their business has actually been doing quite well uh, relatively under the crisis. Um, it, but there are many other corporations that have gotten huge cash bailouts. The airlines are the most obvious One's $25 billion in cash, and they are already laying off workers. So here we are as taxpayers subsidy, subsidizing these companies that aren't even um, committing to keeping their workers on the payroll. Um, there is also Amtrak, which is another kind of like the Postal Service sort of a quasi-government agency. And I'm, I'm all for Amtrak. I live in D.C. I take it up and down the East um, Coast Corridor. But the, the clientele that benefits from Amtrak is much uh, higher income than uh, the, the you know, people across the country who rely on the Postal Service. So why, why give Amtrak a billion in cash and not give the Postal Service one dime? Uh, well, it's all about this longer term strategy to weaken the Postal Service to um, the point where it would be uh, easier for them to push through privatization.
2: You write about the social mission of USPS, and you write it is more important than ever as our country faces a health and economic crisis that is tearing apart families and communities. We all have an interest in ensuring the Postal Service can survive the pandemic and continue to serve Americans for generations to come. To what extent is that social mission not as recognizable under neoliberalism to any anti-gov due to any anti-government feeling there may be in the u.s to what extent do we no longer consider a government agency's social mission
1: yeah well I read a lot of the criticism of the postal service from those neoliberals and <laughs> and free market you know fundamentalist people and and one thing that's just so fascinating to me is they just can't stand this idea that they transfer profits from one part of the business to cover losses in the other. It just like, I guess, makes them break out in hives, and um, and and that's because the, the the purpose of that it really goes back to to a fundamental. Principles about having a country that's unified, that uh, using the postal service to help bind a nation, and that's why it's er- in everyone's interest if we're uh, if what we pay the postal service for our service might help cover the costs of delivering to those routes that are are more costly, the more rural and and remote uh, routes, and. Uh, it is just a, such a fundamentally different way of looking at things than the individualistic um, approach. That I, I think you know the crisis it is forcing people to think about these deep fundamental values. What? Why is the U.S. doing so much worse than a lot of other countries? I think many people see that our, um, you know, the romanticism of the individualistic way of looking at things has really made us less capable of handling this crisis than many other societies where the notion of, um, you know, us all benefiting when we're all doing better is just more, uh, readily embraced and, you know, they can say it goes back to our you know, pioneer <laughs> spirit or whatever. But I just hope that people might see it a little differently in an extreme case, situation like this, where if you're just going to be out for yourself and not about protecting an entire community, um, it just makes us all so much weaker.
2: Getting back to the story that you had at the Hill, you report maintaining uh, that a liquidity crisis is inevitable. Postal office officials, I'm going to read that again, maintaining that a liquidity crisis is inevitable. Postal officials now wager they'll run out of funds sometime between March and October 2021, depending on the rate of economic recovery. What happens when the Postal Service runs out of funds? After all, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 7 of the United States Constitution, known as the Postal (laughs) Clause or the Postal Power, empowers Congress to establish post offices and post roads. So isn't it unconstitutional to not fund and not deliver the mail?
1: We don't know what happens if the post office runs out of money. I've asked uh, people this question, and nobody has a really clear answer. Um, you know, there was a strike in 1970 when uh, mail service was basically stopped. Chicago was a big hub of that, by the way. Um, and it, it was devastating for the economy and it only lasted like eight days. Um, so what would happen if they actually could not um, ha- operate? Uh, is something that I I don't know if anyone has really thought through, but it would be a very scary situation. And, you know, I just I worry the most about all these people who rely on the Postal Service to get their prescriptions, um, their other essentials, their Uh, Checks. Um, Older people and rural people are much more likely to rely on the Postal Service for, um, you know, bill paying and getting their, um, you know, uh, other benefits. Uh, People who don't have internet service. And, you know, again, the crisis has opened our eyes to this. All these kids who are trying to get educated virtually and don't have broadband access. Well, All those people without broadband are also much more reliant on the Postal Service. So you're right, it is embedded in our Constitution to have a public postal service. But I don't think anyone has really contemplated what this country would look like if we woke up one day and the mail service was just halted altogether.
2: Finally, your most recent writing, which appeared at the Progressive, is headlined, Workers Need the Right to Sue. Republicans Want to Give Corporate CEOs a Five-Year Get-Out-of-Jail-Free Card for Jeopardizing the Health and Safety of Their Workers While Threatening the Overall Economic Recovery. Does giving corporations get-out-of-jail-free cards make the pandemic and thus the economy worse? Is this a policy to help a few corporations while prolonging the pandemic and the economic crisis? Because it wouldn't seem to make sense to continually hurt the overall economy Mm -hmm. and only benefit a few corporations.
1: Right. Well, as background, so this is one of Mitch McConnell's red lines in the stimulus negotiations. He said he will not. Uh, approve anything that does not give employers protection from uh, lawsuits that um, workers or family members or workers might want to file because of uh, illness or death related to COVID uh, that they've been exposed to in the workplace. There hasn't been like an avalanche of these lawsuits. Um, and so the real reason for pushing this so hard seems to be that they want to give uh, company executives the green light to act recklessly, um, and and put and be negligent about how they're handling the crisis. Be pushing workers back into to work without the proper protections. And how, how are people going to respond to that? A lot of workers aren't going to go back. Um, a lot of consumers aren't going to feel comfortable going into uh, places of business where they know um, the employers are being reckless and not having proper protections. All of these things are going to be a drag on the economy. It's not about restarting the economy. It's just about making sure that the people at the top of corporate America are protected from the annoyance of lawsuits brought by people who've suffered um, tremendous human losses.
2: And the first time I heard about this, I thought this was to cover lawsuits that may have been incurred due to corporations not knowing exactly how to respond at the outset of the crisis or possibly not getting the correct government uh, guidelines at the beginning of the crisis. But this isn't about trying to address maybe earlier mistakes that corporations have made. As you point out, this is about allowing the corporations to continue acting in a negligent way, which I think is something that's Missed right. when it's discussed in the media.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And yes, it would last um, through 2024. I believe is is the proposal he has on the table.
2: Yeah, which is five years of a get out of jail free card. I would really like to have one of those. I need a get out of jail free card on a regular <laughs> basis, Sarah. So, Sarah, it's great talking to you. But as you know, or if you remember, this has been so long. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with Sarah Anderson, who directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and is co-editor of the IPS website, inequality.org. You can find out more about the Institute for Policy Studies and all of Sarah's writing at IPS. Dc.org. On Patreon tomorrow at patreon.com This is how we will be playing our March fifteenth two 2003 interview with Sarah That we did on the first day of the invasion of Iraq When she was on to talk about her writing at the time Coalition of the Coerced You can follow Sarah on Twitter at SarahDAnderson1 Our question from hell for you is Sarah, I am afraid that if I do mail-in voting My vote won't be counted Research has shown as much as 22% of mail-in ballots are not counted for whatever reason on a very regular basis The likelihood, therefore, that my vote will be counted, that it will not be suppressed, I think greatly diminishes if I actually go vote at a physical booth How about you? Are you going to do mail-in or are you just going to vote in person?
1: I'm definitely going to do mail-in. I already see received my application from the DC government. I think for people who have concerns about this, the most important thing they can do right now is to demand that Congress steps up and provides the the funding um, and the support that the Postal Service needs, so that we can all feel very sure and confident that they can handle vote by mail. I don't think anyone should feel like they need to uh, show up, you know, jeopardize their public health to um, go and vote this year. And, and so that's really what I'd focus on. I, I also just want to end by saying I, I don't know if I can bear listening to an interview that I did in 2003. But I <laughs> want to be embarrassing. You should try to dig up uh, recordings of me delivering the news at WNUR, which I did when I was a college student there in the late 1980s. So <laughs> that would be really embarrassing.
2: <laughs> I will see what we can dig up to embarrass you as much as possible. I'll be working on it for the next couple of weeks, Sarah. I really, I really appreciate you being back on the air and on our show again. And it's great to hear your voice again. And we'll be bugging you far sooner than in 2029, nine years from now. I promise.
1: <laughs> okay, take care. Take Bye-bye.
2: care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. During the moment of truth, which is coming up with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question Mel? which is, what is the name of the system you want?
0: Right. What is the name of the system you want? What is the name of the system that you... Well, oh, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, sort-by-new thing is not working. Okay, here we go, here we go. Uh, Marnell says, Novo Dio Idem Guano Post-Inverted Fascism. I don't know, what. I got the guano part, maybe. <laughs> uh, Lawrence M. says, socialist humanism. Nick E. says, collectivist solipsism, which is very <laughs> good. Uh, Andrea J. says, cannabis-induced long-term fever dream. <laughs> Damn, I think I have that <laughs> right now. Uh, Astrid N. says, anything but this crap. <laughs> Wally R. says, a bogs, uh, Bob Seeger system. Oh, uh, V-email, a couple ones. Ugh. Neil C. says, I'll set a low bar in the fight against American exceptionalism and go with... The metric system mm. adam b says horny theocracy <laughs> who is that That's adam b uh and <laughs> hypocrite reader our friends uh say also all hail the metric system
2: <laughs> horny theocracy <laughs> <I think> probably
0: <laughs> most theocracies actually are horny
2: uh hail uh, well, the metric system yeah i do want to move to metric time 10 hours a day 10 days a week 10 months a year it's pretty easy really we, Alex, will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff. Again, email us your answer to Chuck at com. alex at com, Post them on Facebook, Facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM us via Twitter. At This Is Hell Radio. We will be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show today after Jeff Torchin delivers the moment of truth. So get your answers in now. This week, Jeff prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com/slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at ten a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after this week on Patreon. Earlier on the show, I explained how my mail is still broken and that this past Saturday it was so bad we didn't get any mail except for a copy of the August 17th, 2020 issue of Star Magazine. While the tornado was tearing through our neighborhood on Monday, power went out. It was still bright enough outside to read by natural light. As I had nothing else to do, I made the mistake of opening the August seventeenth, 2020 issue of Star Magazine and being reminded of all the reasons I worked so hard to not ever having any contact with the industry of celebrity. And then I unfortunately found that industry in the most unlikely place. An uprising against a military junta in Thailand So I'll be talking about that on tomorrow's Patreon podcast Also on Patreon Like I was saying, we are sharing our March 15, 2003 interview with today's guest Sarah Anderson, who was on back then to talk about her writing Coalition of the Coerced Which explained how the U.S. manipulated allies into joining in on the illegal invasion and occupation of Iraq That was being launched the day of our conversation with Sarah. So on Patreon tomorrow, live at patreon.com slash thisishell, 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time podcast shortly after. We'll be playing our interview with Sarah from the first day of the Iraq War and me being really grossed out by celebrity and how it even permeates reporting, actual news reporting, on uprisings against dictatorships. But you can only hear my disgust and Sarah's insight by subscribing. On Patreon, if you do subscribe as a Patreon patron You will get a special code So you can get a discount off of all of our swag Which you can see right now at thisishell.com When you click on support And you'll have access to almost 250 earlier Patreon podcasts Coming up, Jeff in The Moment of Truth We'll read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell We'll announce this week's winner Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while it was really really high also while a tornado was tearing through my backyard this is hell my guess is you already have hefe
3: the rotten egg manifesto welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink social metaphors are crutches problem is we can't walk without crutches if we try we end up writing dry technical papers which are great for communicating between experts in specialized fields if our intent is to communicate to as broad a public as possible though we need imaginative language. An argument to be convincing on a practical level can use analogies but only to illustrate practical statements and only where mathematics, logic, or other analytical tools fall short. A manifesto's metaphors, however, are its blood. A manifesto will communicate its author's passion through metaphors. Chains are an excellent metaphor for limited liberty and being released from chains even if one is not literally shackled in them, is a powerful image to the oppressed. Outlining needs, plans, and tasks requires more sober types of communication, and the people who take on the responsibility of doing dry, sober work might be tempted to allocate themselves some extra goodies. How does someone find themselves in such a position? On a small scale, a person might have proven themselves to others to be responsible, competent, honest, kind, and a fair arbiter of available goods and where and to whom they ought to go. On a larger scale, and over time, though, a tendency to allow oneself and others a few violations of ethical behavior develops into an unhealthy culture of overweening self-congratulation and privilege. Here's where metaphors come in. The cream of the crop does not rise to the top. In reality, the worst of the crop claws its way to the top. Except it's not a crop, it's a herd. And it's not a geological formation like a mountain, it's a pile of excrement. We ought to say, the worst of the herd declares itself the top turd. The story, not the Freudian story or the story of creation, But the paleoanthropological story goes that in early gathering tribes, the bounty was shared out equally among the tribe's members. Tribal status was conferred by age or wisdom. In times of want, the highest status members, maybe matriarchs, but elders at least, would decide the size of portions and to whom they would be meted out. When hunters began to emerge in the tribe, a rare kill was divided in the manner just described, although as prehistory went on and societies became larger and more complex, control over a commodity in short supply began to be confused with status, until one day they were one and the same. The one in control of material wealth was also adjudged the best member of society, Obviously, it couldn't be any old commodity in short supply, had to be required by, or at least desired by, others. Electing precious metal as a monetary standard was a milestone in the development of the status-slash-control model. The agreement to use a metal as rare and difficult to acquire as gold, but still acquirable and plentiful enough to be hoarded by those in control, was the choice of those already in power, whose intent was to enforce this gold-equals-value agreement on everyone. For a while now, the agreement has outlived its need for gold. Accumulation in abstract numbers is its own wealth fetish, and it is indeed a rare person who hasn't found themselves conscripted into service of this agreement. One measure of good social leadership is how wisely necessities and luxuries are parsed out. And by that measure, the society of the United States as a whole has never been subject to particularly good leadership. Leaders have only been able to present themselves as good by ignoring or causing their main constituencies to ignore the ways they've shafted a minority or by using the shafted minority as a foil to make their also shafted main constituencies feel privileged by comparison. For many of us, It's unclear why this model of status-slash-control has persisted. At a certain point, civilization was bound to achieve a state in which all its members' needs and an incalculable amount of their desires could be provided for without any of them being shafted. For as long as I've been able to read, our global society has been at this state of material sufficiency. At the moment, of course, it is teetering on the edge of a catastrophe, but we'll deal with that later. The status control model requires the fetishization of a manifestation of wealth that can be hoarded, or, using the terms favored by economists, capital that can be accumulated. But with abundance in everything, available almost everywhere, location being almost moot, thanks to our advanced ability to conquer distance, hoarding alone is not enough to maintain status-slash-control. To keep segments of the population in need requires extreme violence, both against the people, who might be their own agents, availing themselves of a portion of abundance, and against the world itself, which can produce abundance, and upon the surface of which abundance's availability is evident. There's a metaphor that goes, you can't live on sunshine. Of course, you might be able to if you had chlorophyll in your cells, but Can you live on gold or numerical assets only because of the agreement that those things have value? They don't have value aside from what we all agree to give them. A wise leadership might have chosen something readily at hand, like sunlight or air, and declared the wealth of humanity be based on how much of that we could rely on. Then we'd be in the chips. Let's not forget that the sun is indeed very valuable. Without it, we couldn't exist for a moment, and yet to our good fortune, it exists. We really have won the lottery in that respect. Imagine if we simply declared the sun our treasury. We'd have an unimaginably vast amount in our treasury, and from the looks of things, there are even larger treasuries out there no one seems to require. Transmitting all our energy from the sun is small potatoes. We could be sending out solar collectors with transmitters to other stars right now, and they could eventually be transmitting us energy from other parts of the galaxy. Theoretically, we don't ever have to run out of wealth. Everyone can have enough. And for all you competitive ego trippers out there, we can think of something else for you to measure your status by, besides food, shelter, and other basic goods. Maybe attractiveness, intelligence, athletic ability, luck. Don't those seem unfairly distributed enough to make you feel good about yourselves? When they dug up gold and said, whoever has the largest amount of this substance is in charge of the distribution of all things, it was like when one kid says, last one in the pool is a rotten egg. Suddenly something of no importance whatsoever takes on for however short a time utmost significance no one wants to be a rotten egg for a limited amount of time the race is on to get into the pool and not be the rotten egg but once everyone's in the pool the last one if anyone's even paid attention is not shunned as a rotten egg if rotten egg status is conferred at all it's for the briefest moment everyone's in the pool it can't be hoarded except by the owner of the property who incidentally the kids all agreed to secretly murder just before availing themselves of the abundance of swimming water. The status-slash-control model is a game we're in, but it doesn't have to be. It definitely doesn't have to be the only game in town. The problem is we're coming to the point when the status-slash-control model and the global justice model are mutually exclusive. There are many of those who, for some reason, want the status-slash-control model to conquer and control everything, and they are winning right now. We, even those of us who passionately desire every single person to have whatever it is in our collective power to supply them so they can live free, healthy, happy lives, even we're conscripted into this evil, punitive game of violently depriving the losers. It makes everything we have, whether we've earned it or not, seem a little bit vicious or empty or otherwise unwholesome. What is the difference between the status-slash-control people and the global justice people? Two things, awareness and compassion. The global justice people are aware that the excessive wealth of some is others' burden of a lack of basic goods. And in addition to being aware of that unfairness and being aware of the possibility of living without that unfairness, It also matters to us. The status slash control model itself is offensive and hurtful to us not just because of which people are deprived but that people are deprived at all now when deprivation is unnecessary. The questions are can we change status slash control people into global justice people through strategic teaching? If not, can we defeat and subjugate the status slash control people and still call ourselves global justice people? If not that, can we just exterminate all the status-slash-control people and indoctrinate future generations not to be status-slash-control people without turning ourselves into a dystopian prison of enforced mediocrity? The ideal is global justice in a material and legal sense. We have little hope of achieving that ideal anytime soon. On the other hand, The status-slash-control people are already in control and have been for millennia. So with civilization teetering on the edge of catastrophe, we have nothing to lose by aiming for our ideal and the defeat of the status-slash-control system. Aim for the ideal, siblings, parents, and offspring. We have nothing to lose but the indoctrination that thwarts our complete freedom. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, good day.
2: I liked when you described the society of the United States as a whole. I thought that that was really kind of a
3: it is a whole. It's a it's a it, it, it's a food hole. Jeffy, what are you going on vacation?
2: Going on vacation, so you don't have a moment. Next week we'll have a moment of truth again. In two weeks, uh, are you mm-hmm. leaving for Michigan anytime? You usually go up around this time.
3: I am trapped here.
2: Oh, that's right.
3: But uh, I might try to. We'll see what I will see what I can get away with. Would you, would would you uh, bring me back one of those little soaps? <laughs> would you put a bumper sticker
2: on your card made up of different religions, uh, religious symbols that said, eat a dick? Because I yes. will se- send that to you and put it on your car because you're the only person I know that would actually put this on their car and enjoy driving around a car with an eat a dick bumper sticker on it.
3: You know, I was going to actually say, why can't we all just eat a dick? <laughs> All right, Jeffy,
2: until two weeks from now. Yeah? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Are we going to have to take all that eat a dick stuff out for WNUR? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alex. I'm so sorry. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, cap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Merz, producing Alex, Jerry. Alex, let's get the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell, What is the name of the system you want?
0: Uh, what is the name of the system you want? A.T. Moore says a dependable digestive system. <laughs> uh, 70s Aleppo Manist says a communist manifesto, a communistic manifesto for the twenty-first century written as art. Who said dependable digestive system? That was A.T. Moore. Okay. Uh, Sol HM says collaborative anarchy. Mm-hmm. Chase D says <laughs> chiltocracy. A government ruled by the chillest people mm-hmm. in the land becomes naturally decentralized as a 10 to 1 CBD to THC ratio replaces fluoride in the water.
2: Well, at least we won't be communists from fluoride anymore. Uh,
0: Nick A says, Kevorkian absolutism.
2: (laughs) Which I love.
0: Uh, Let me refresh. I think that. uh, Jeff M says, Hella SoCalism, Mm brah. I think that's it. Let me take a look. Uh, Mike M says, PlayStation 2. (laughs) There we go.
2: So, uh, let's see... Uh, Oh, sorry,
0: missed one. Sorry, uh, getting my ass kicked by these sort by new things. Uh, Finally, uh, Jeff C. says, I was hoping fascism would meet the needs of the planet.
2: (laughs) The answers I liked the most were Andrea saying cannabis-induced long-term fever dream. Fergus, the only good system is a sound system. Chase's chilotocracy. I really liked. Nick's Kevorkian absolutism is great. Sebastian saying shut up, dad, or everybody gets a cake except Steve. I like... Colin, I'm not too sure if you read this earlier this week, Anarcho-Laziness with Comfy Characteristics. Oh, yeah. I kind of like that. And Adam B. saying uh, horny theocracy. Any of those really jump out at you?
0: Uh, horny theocracy is pretty funny. Yeah,
2: I like ho- horny theocracy, too. I am le- I was leaning towards Kevorkian absolutism. <laughs> oh, yeah, damn, <laughs> that's a good one, too. Let's go with uh, Adam B. and horny theocracy. Adam, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Which means that you are going to be receiving a This Is Hell medical face mask in the mail shortly If you did not win and you still want a This Is Hell medical face mask Which come in three different designs including a new black This Is Hell medical face mask All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support My answer to this week's question from Hell What is the name of the system you want? And unfortunately, AT more beat me to it a little bit It's actually two systems I call them a working neurological system So I would be able to see and a working digestive system so I don't miss any more shows after my vacation That starts immediately after tomorrow's Patreon podcast Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers To this week's question from hell Thanks to everybody for supporting Completely listener supported This is hell Thanks to Jeffrey who dropped by the store yesterday And showed his support for This is Hell You can check out the store as well By going to thisishell.com And clicking on support And finding all of the stuff that we Got that we can give to you Alex, you haven't confirmed anybody for when we come back yet, have you? Nope. Already? We start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's cure is Salmon, thanks to all of this week's guests, including members of the Writing, Translating, and Organizing Lauzan Collective Andy W. and Promise Lee, who are on to talk about their Tempest magazine article, Left on an Island, Hong Kong, China, and International Solidarity. Thanks to Rome-based writer and translator David Broder for returning to This Is Hell. He's the author of the new book, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. And finally, thanks to today's guest, Sarah Anderson, who directs the Global Economy Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and is co-director of the IPS website, inequality.org. We also want to thank whoever the anonymous letter writer, package sender, whatever you want to call yourself from Oakland, California, who sent us these really great stickers. If you want to send us anything in the mail, we don't care what it is. Send it to this is hell two two five one West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois. 60659. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our interview with today's guest, Sarah Anderson, from the morning of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 when she was on to explain how U.S. allies had been co- uh, coerced into supporting the war. And I'm looking into the dead eyes of celebrity, which seems to be staring back at me everywhere. If you are not a Patreon subscriber, I will be talking to you next on Tuesday. August 25th at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. If you're a Patreon subscriber, again, talk to you tomorrow. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying those simple words, everybody's stupid.
3: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.